So hello and uh, welcome to episode eight of Regulate.Tech. Um, I'm Richard Allen and with me is... Niklas Beer-Lemblad. Uh, and today we're going to do something a, a little different. I mean, we've been making s- several episodes, weekly episodes of this podcast, and Nicholas and I are really enjoying it. We want to carry on. Uh, and we know that s- some of you listening into this will know us already, but there, there may be others who are thinking, you know, who are these guys and, and why do they think their thoughts on tech regulation are worth sharing? Um, so today we thought let's add some context by doing something a little different and talking about who we are and where we've come from uh, and then next week we'll go back to the the crunchy stuff the the uh, substance of technology regulation so um I, i'm going to kick it off uh, and i'm going to start at the beginning and uh, nicholas really and, and ask you kind of as a teenager and, and sort of running into university years like what were the things that really interested you what, what were you working on at, at school and got you excited Oh, it's, I mean, I'm, I was in Stockholm. I'm a Swede born and bred. So I spent time in, in a, a Swedish high school. And the things that really got me enthusiastic were uh, very depressed French existentialists and philosophy in general. I love philosophy and law, actually, strangely enough, because I, I really wanted to know more about law. So as I left high school and applied to university, I applied to uh, a course in what in Sweden is called uh, theoretical philosophy. That's ethics. That's not ethics. That's sort of ontology and epistemology, etc. And uh, to uh, to law school. So that's essentially what I was uh, planning to do with my life at the time. Philosophy and law. Very unclear how you combine both of them, but uh, that was what I think I was most interested in then. And, and what was your relationship? Uh, well, for your relationship with technology um, at that time? Were, uh, you, were yes. you were you into computers? It was very different, as we're going to get onto. Very different time. It was a very different time. And in order to answer that question, I need to go back to when I was eight years old, when I got my first computer. So my father brought home something that was called an ABC80, which was a Swedish-made computer uh, that had its own version of BASIC and some very, very simple games. And I loved it. It had these five and a uh, five and a quarter inch discs, and it had a black and white screen. And, you know, it's BASIC language the basic language was super simple and i remember that i taught myself programming because i wanted to cheat at one of the games and the games was called worm and it was sort of about just driving this worm around the screen and it got longer and longer and started driving faster and faster and i found a way that i could make it move even faster every second time so if I just started playing and then handed it over to my friend, he would get an, a consecutively faster and faster and faster and harder and harder and harder game, whereas mine would sort of progress at a leisurely pace and I could easily beat him. So I guess cheating was my my, my uh, introduction to, to computer programming. And this was, I was eight years old. My, my first own computer that I bought and I saved for like for months was uh, a Commodore 64. A friend of mine had gotten the VIC-20, but I got the Commodore 64, and um, and I tried to learn Poke and Peek and all of the different sort of kind of machine language things that you could do with it. But I gave up and installed Simon's Basic, which was my, my other big computer experience, because Simon's Basic allowed you to do sprites. And sprites were like graphic, and you could almost make games. And the only thing that was missing was sort of any experience whatsoever in thinking about games. So that went went so so. So th- that's my 
I mean, and that then continued on, right? I always had a computer. I always was was tinkering with it. And, you know, it. I moved on to the IBM PC. I had one of the first uh, Apple Macs, uh, the Macintosh in Sweden, actually, because of a friend of mine was importing them. And then I got the Mac Lisa and I loved it. And I played Transylvania on the Mac Lisa, which was <laughs> epic game. It was really, really good. So well, you, you see the pattern. It's usually, yeah, you can yeah. say, it started with Commodore 64. I had, you know, one of my first Christmas gifts was the Atari 2600. You know, I was I was really good at asteroids. I never, ever understood that. So there was this horrible E.T. game, which might have been one of the worst computer games in history that was released for the Atari 2600. And I remember spending entire Christmas break just trying to figure out you know, what What was what? <laughs> How did you actually play this game? Because it was far from obvious. So yeah. those are, that's sort of a hodgepodge of experiences that then led me yeah. on. So, but, right. but let's hear from you. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. That was a lovely picture of you as a, a philosophical, legal uh, geek way back when. I, I guess I was an archaeological geek. Um, so I, I was obviously educated in the UK. Um, I uh, uh, sort of used to like both sciences and arts, um, but in the UK system, you have to choose. And at 16, you've got to go in, in one direction or the other. Um, so I actually went to the direction of learning uh, the classics, uh, Latin, Greek. I was a, a linguist. Um, I'd, in, I'd enjoyed uh, science and maths. I had a weird experience when it got to calculus, uh, so abstract math, anything to do with arithmetic, I get. Anything to do with kind of more abstract mathematical concepts just never landed. So I sort of felt stuck in that direction, went off in the Latin and Greek direction. Um, I, I remember coming across computers, and I'm, I think I'm a little older than you, and at that stage, you know, a computer was something that if you went to a fancy school, they might have one of, and they had a computer club, and only the people in the computer club got to play with the computer. Uh, and I remember going to um, hang out with people in the computer club, and they, again, games. They, they had a thing, a Star Trek game that was written in BASIC and involved ASCII characters on the screen. So there'll be an ASCII character for your Star Trek Ent Starship Enterprise and Asterix character for the Klingons, and you had to navigate this grid. It's very mathematical. Um, and I really enjoyed that and, and got that was my first taste of programming. You know, you could get the basic code and read it, and I thought that was quite exciting. So, so I might have sort of headed off in that direction, um, but for another those sort of accidental things that happened that um th there was a an archaeological excavation near to where I went to school and I went down there and and um thought ooh I like this and started volunteering and so as I sort of got into my late teens here I was a a classicist studying the ancient texts and in my spare time digging up uh, Roman artifacts um, uh, on, a, on an archaeological site. And so that, and that then became my real passion. And so I went on then uh, to university. I actually uh, I got a bit more modern than Latin and Greek as I went on to study Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic. So we went from so, sort of uh, uh, 500 AD to 500, uh, 500 BC to 500 AD, which was a, sort of the classical period to 500 AD through to about 1200 AD, um, where we were reading the Norse sagas uh, in the original, the old Norse sagas in the original, and uh, Welsh texts like the Mabinogion, which is a, a sort of classic. Mm. Uh, middle welsh tech so so that was it so i sort of had original taste of tech and then got massively diverted into archaeology and and um, all things linguistic and classical 
But you were essentially on like an Indiana Jones track, right? That was you were supposed to get a hat and a whip and then go off into the jungles. That sounds like it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think Amy could say that. Yes, I remember watching um, an Indiana Jones movie on my first archaeological dig with all the archaeologists, and we were whooping and cheering in the cinema, all the wrong bits. <laughs> that's what archaeologists do. And uh, that was so much fun. So yes, I, I, when I left school. That was it. I was off, and and within a week of leaving school, I was at an archaeological site in Wales, and then then I moved to one in France, and then one in the Netherlands. Uh, archaeology in the Netherlands is really good fun because you, you dig a hole, and then you've got to jump in there really really quick and record everything before it fills up with water, <laughs> and you've got to jump out again before you drown. So, so that was like like fun archaeology, and then and then actually by the time I got to university, I was off in in South America. I actually spent quite a bit of time excavating in ecuador um which was the true indiana jones you were literally in the jungle then so i, I mean that's that's, that's a, the proper yeah. indiana jones stuff oh. did you get any statuettes that were cursed uh, or uh, no cursed statues although it it did um it got hairy at various times there were a couple of times where guns were pointed at me uh and i didn't have Ooh. a whip yeah i know it's um it's kind of occupational hazard in some of the zones we were in but once once because we'd um disrespected a, a, a night watchman uh on the site next to the archaeological site and the other time because people thought we were pirates um because we were sleeping on a beach near an archaeological site and uh, the locals couldn't quite understand what these people were doing uh, sleeping on a beach and um, we did try and explain to them that we were english archaeologists or archaeologos ingleses and um, by the time we got got to the village this had become uh, italian psychologists psicologos italianos uh, uh, through sort of word of mouth but but anyway so yeah that was the indiana jones experience um and incidentally, my first flight as a as a, a young person, we never flew. Um, my very yeah. first flight, I got the age, I think, 19 or mm. 20, and it was to Quito in Ecuador. So um, wow. that was quite a good That's sort of really ba- cool. baptism of flying. All the, all the other stuff had been ferries and stuff before that, um, yes. including a ferry I to Oslo one time. Of, <laughs> between sort of the, the English archaeologists and the Italian psychologists and the pirates, <laughs> I think you're sort of you're triangulating a really interesting persona there. (laughs) You want to be in the middle of those three. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's the way we've developed maybe over time. But yes, that was all fun. So so let's let's move on then. So you're you're a uh, I'm going to come back to you now, a lawyer and a philosopher at university, uh, and you you leave. What what does a a legal philosopher do for a living? Um, Where did your career take you in your twenties, and how did you get started? Well, I think the thing that happened was that the computers came back. Right. So one of the things that, that happened was in the middle of uh, when I was going to university, 92, 93, 94, uh, suddenly I sort of just stumbled on this thing called the Internet. And I started I was taking a few uh, computer science courses and I started out just, you know, FTPing everything that I could possibly FTP down on computer languages and computer culture, etc. from the school computers because they were all connected to the Internet. And very fast, as I remember it, although I may be misremembering it, we all got uh, modems at home, you know, dial up modems. And soon enough, I started understanding that this Internet thing was really interesting. So by... Around '95, um, I was I was pretty good at doing HTML. I I could hack my own JavaScript. I had even tinkered a little bit with object-oriented languages and all that stuff. And 
I was at the same time um, spending an enormous amount of time at the university, not always studying. And I know this will surprise you, but there were actually other things one could do at university, including uh, things like uh, designing the website for the local uh, university newspaper, because one of their editors was really cool. And she then later became my wife. And so there were a lot of different things that sort of distracted. But one thing that happened was that during university, I saw a small ad that said, you know, do you know HTML? And that was basically the only thing they wanted to know about you if you knew HTML, call us. And so I called these people up and it turned out that they were computer educators. They were educating firms and they're educating the employees of firms on using the internet. So I became a consultant for them, still working at the university. And what I did was I trained people in using the internet. This sounds incredible today because why on earth would you do that? How hard can it be? But this was really a thing. You trained people and you you taught them to use things like um, WinFTP, how to sort of transfer files. I remember we sort of taught them which websites were really good because, you know, how do you use Yahoo? At the time, there was no, no Google. Um, we, we taught them to look up the weather at the CNN website. And I remember we had one special class that I really adored with, with a, um, a fair amount of elderly ladies from the technical university who were supposed to be taught the internet. And this was in November in Sweden. And, you know, November in Sweden is no hope, no mercy, November. Um, <laughs> and so when we were looking at the weather. It was gray, cold, dark, damp for seven weeks. And, you know, her faith in the internet was absolute. So she raised her hand and she said, Nicholas, Nicholas, where do you click to change? <laughs> so you <laughs> wanted to change the weather. And so I did that, and the computers led me on to legal informatics, and I worked as a research amanuensis in legal informatics for a while. That led me on to a research institute called the Swedish Institute of System Design, where I worked for a little bit. And then, just as I was uh, uh, in 1999, we're at the end of the 20s now, um, I was offered a stipend to go to Menlo Park. I'll stop at that cliffhanger oh, and then we'll go over yeah, to you. Exactly. So, so you did manage to pull together your, your tech and your legal as you got started in, uh, in that profession. Fascinating. And as an educator, yeah, I remember those days when, when your modem was upgraded from 19.2K to 38.4K and suddenly mm. the world, everything was possible. Um, Happy days. Yes. I think, we, I wonder if we had the same. We had 28.8 and 56.6. That's right. Those it were is, the, the states we had, I remember. Yes. Yeah. No, it went up, it went up, it was 9.6 increments, wasn't it? It was 9.6K, yes. 9.6,000 bytes, and then 19.2, <laughs> and then 28.4, and then it just kept going from there, 37.6. Were they bytes or bobs? Bytes, I think. Or bits. No, bits. They were bits, weren't they? Board. Board. Board, board is a bit per second, I think, if I remember. Uh, I think board so, yes. was one bit per second, yes. Yeah. So. I think they were um, boards, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, they were boards. Those were the days, yes. You're absolutely right. So, so by a factor of eight. So 9.6 board was 1,200 bytes uh, in a second. Wow. And there'll be a lot of people who are younger than us scratching their heads if they're listening to this um, right now. That's completely fine. We, are, we have reached sort of the edge of grumpy old men, so we can do a bit of that, I think. Yes. What about you? You were, you oh, yes. were, you were yeah. sort of Indiana Jones. You were That's a right. pirate in Peru, essentially. That's yeah, in Ecuador. 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 And, and okay, I, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Pirate so in I, Ecuador. I, graduated ran off to ecuador and then and then came back to the uk and i moved to the city of bath which is a beautiful 
ancient uh, city in southwest of England. Um, and I ended up sort of working on building sites and in pubs. And, uh, you know, I was looking around and thinking is other jobs in archaeology. There, there were actually two professional posts in archaeology in the city of Bath. And I knew both of the people uh, who occupied those posts. And they were both relatively young and healthy. So it didn't look like a job was going to become available. So, so um, uh, here I am, washed up in Bath in my early 20s, finding that my archaeological career is in ruins. And that's deliberate. You can just groan at that point. Um, so my, I, it's, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Sorry. No, 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 let's go. <laughs> the, the, the old ones can be the best. Anyway, so I'm, I'm there. Um, it feels like a bit of a dead end. And I, while I've been working in Ecuador, I've been a guy who came and uh, did the computers because increasingly people were using computers to record what happened on an archaeological site. So moving from just writing it all down on bits of paper to, to sort of basic databases. Um, and this guy, I was a, very impressed by him not least by the fact that he got put up in a hotel while the rest of us were sleeping in tents you know and it was sort of like there was a, the, the computer guys a special guy and so so he he had sort of inspired me to think refresh this interest i'd had um you know back to the star trek game and all of that or maybe this computer thing is interesting and it's funny you said a small ad because that was my experience i was i was looking at the guardian newspaper and there was a small ad and i'll, I'll paraphrase it but only just it basically said are you a useless arts graduate looking to learn some useful <laughs> skills? And and if you are, come and do a master's degree in information technology. And I, well, this is good. <laughs> so, um, and it was at Bristol Polytechnic, as it then won. It's it'd been rebranded now, the University of West of England, but the uh, Bristol Polytechnic, as it then was, uh, uh, essentially the government paid for me to go and do a master's degree in IT. Uh, and I went there, and I, I found that. Um, I loved it. Uh, we we learned COBOL. Um, uh, that was our sort of core programming language, which which is kind of the computer equivalent of Latin and Greek. I mean, it's an ancient language that's still sort of widely used. Um, and in fact, probably if you're using an online banking app now, you know they won't be COBOL won't be using the front end, but somewhere in the back end, there's some system probably still in your bank that uses COBOL that no one you know wanted to to break, and so they've left it running. Anyway, so learned some very sort of classic uh, languages. Um, got my master's degree in IT. I actually uh, brought my interest together because you had to do a, a degree project, and my degree project was to build an urban archaeological database for the city of Bath. And so I pulled together um, the data they had from the excavations with their mapping data. Um, uh, wrote a lot in AutoLisp. I loved Lisp. Lisp is a again a language not not used oh, yeah. much now, but it's oh, language. Just a million brackets, everything in brackets, all super recursive. So I, I um, wrote a lot of stuff which which used this Auto Lisp, which came with a, uh, a, a drawing program called AutoCAD at the time, and uh, I used that to merge together data from databases with um, drawings of archaeological sites. That was all fun. That was my master's degree project. And then I was um, sort of, uh, as I reached the end of that, I thought, what can I do that's useful? And I applied for a job with the National Health Service. Um, and, and my boss at the time who recruited me said, said he, he recruited me by accident. And he had a very good sense of humor. I love my boss then. So I, I, it might have been a joke, but it was a great joke. So I'll, I've kept it. And that, and that was it. He, he had gone to the recruiting agency and he said he wanted someone who was very logical. And they typed logical into their database. And my CV said, uh, worked as archaeological excavator, archaeological this, archaeological that. And so he said, 
I hit all the buttons because I had my archaeological experience, which uh, both proves sometimes how things can be serendipitous and proves how literal computers are. <laughs> um, um, anyway, he, he got me, uh, saw me, never worked in IT before, but he t- took a chance, brought me in, and then I worked in for the rest of my 20s. I worked in the UK National Health Service, f- first um, building networks uh, at a time when the internet protocol was a banned protocol in the UK National Health Service because it wasn't a, an official registered international telecommunications union protocol. Um, and the first job was was getting, at that time, the only people who had computers were the secretarial staff who used them as glorified word processors. And my first job was to build a, a network and move those people from WordPerfect to Microsoft Word, which is new. This is pre-Windows. Uh, then mm-hmm. Windows came along, and I had to install that and get people used to Windows. I, I was the IT guy, and I, I learned how to turn it off and on again very gracefully. That is the trick, and it works in we all know it works it in like 90, trick, yeah, yeah. 90% of times, but you can you can do it in a particularly graceful way. I think that, that helps win credibility. Um, uh, so, yes, I did the classic tech support, built networks, and then actually went on to build uh, a management information system. Um, so, so I worked in part of the health service administration. They had uh, the databases they had ran on old, they were called PDP-11s, old mini computers. Uh, and they ran in a programming language called MUMPS, uh, which I think has been rebranded as M, just the letter M. And MUMPS is like a super, super efficient programming language where everything is done with just sort of single letters. Uh, and at that time, this was a health service database that had a database of a million patients. And like, like now you could have a database of a million things on your phone. <laughs> but at that time, you needed a mini computer and a, like a super, super efficient language to be able to handle a mil- million records. Uh, and my job was to kind of get the data out of that database and then create all the bits of glue that allowed you to extract information and display it in user-friendly stuff like Excel spreadsheets and, and sort of user-friendly desktops. Um, so I did that the rest of my 20s. I built the system for One Health yeah. Authority, and then within the NHS, we sold it to a range of other uh, NHS authorities, probably ended up about 20 or 30 of them, uh, took this off one, and I would go around the country and try and extract the data from whatever variety of mini computer they had, get it into some kind of holding area, and then get it out uh, on the network, um, uh, which I loved. wrote a lot of uh, I, SQL. I love that. It's, it's a career yeah. based on a fussy match. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> It's, it's 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 I like it. It's it's very iconical. It's very good. And so yeah. so um, that's that's your twenties. That's essentially that's, what you were doing. Yeah, that's right. And I and I that's, uh, so that's cool. me there. And I'm I'm going to leave me there and come back to you and and think as you go into your thirties. So you've you've been an educator. Uh, you've worked at the the institute, um, uh, and now you're you've just left us. The cliffhanger you left us on was that you were heading off to Menlo Park. Uh, which, for those people yes. who don't know, is the home of Google and is at the heart of the Silicon Valley. So, so young Nicholas is heading off to Menlo Park on a stipend. Tell us. About well, it. the home to Facebook, but much later. And at the time, so yeah. Google always kept. Oh, sorry, you, you but I to think Facebook, Mountain View. 
Yeah, there you go. Anyway, I think, I think so. Yes, I need to do a quick detour. So before I ent- uh, before I came into the uh, the institute, the research institute, I also finished my studies in philosophy. And uh, the two sort of the, the last year in philosophy, you were supposed to write two papers, uh, essentially, you know, your thesis. And uh, at that time, I had thought that I should be able to use something from my computer experience in working in philosophy. So I decided to write about artificial intelligence. So this is 1998. I wrote um, a a short program that fell off the table and then tried to teach it not to fall off the table. And when I did that, I then applied DC Dennett's theory of the intentional stance to see if it was easier to explain my program as intentional than mechanistically through the algorithms that it was using and tried to sort of explore this this question of whether or not my little program was conscious. Uh, So cruel experiments with computer programs then led me on to my thesis that I wrote about Marvin Minsky's society of mind, this idea that, that mind is not describable as a single set of software, but as a whole community of different pieces of software, different identities. And so I was doing artificial intelligence in philosophy. I had legal informatics. And so that's what brought me into the Institute. And then there was this post announced, it's a, it's a stipend really, where the Swedish Office of Science and Technology asked for somebody to come and do essentially business and political intelligence in Silicon Valley. It's really, really hard job to get, but I incredibly managed to get it because for once they didn't want to have an engineer, which was, I think I was the only non-engineer who applied and they were sort of attracted by this idea of someone with a with a legal background and with a little bit of philosophy and cognitive science there that they, they, could, they could show that they were not just catering to engineers. So I, I got to pack up my bags and travel off to Menlo Park. And I spent uh, all of 1999 and uh, half of the year 2000 during the bubble, essentially, um, in Menlo Park. And it was it was tremendously fascinating just to see the enormous amount of energy, money, the hopes, the enthusiasm, and then slowly, slowly realize that this is probably not going to be sustainable. And even though, I mean, I think the bubble created some fantastic companies and I, I'm, not a sure, I'm not sure at all that we wouldn't have the internet economy we have today if it wasn't for that. It was very clear uh, to all of the people who were there that we were in a bubble. I remember attending an event by Red Herring, the founders of Red Herring, uh, where they read out the valuations of different companies and then had the audience cry out loud, on paper, for every valuation. (laughs) And then they started to read out the amount of money that they had burned, these different companies. And there was this gentleman in the front row who was that far too many drinks and was one of the venture capitalists. And when they read out the first amount of sunk cost in one of these companies, he cried on paper and (laughs) the entire room became silent. And the the lecturer leaned into the microphone and said, no, sir, that's real money. That was sort of a (laughs) chilling moment that you realized that, oh, this might not be going entirely well. So uh, I did this for a year and a half. And then in my thirties, I returned to Sweden and, uh, I had been recruited into the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, where a a fantastic mentor of mine um, had decided that he wanted to set up a Stockholm Chamber of E-Commerce because there were so many e-commerce companies and he wanted to sort of figure out what we could do for them, etc. So I got around to do that for for five and a half years, I think. Um, And... I loved it. It was really interesting. It was at the intersection of politics and law and technology and you know businesses. And it was super fascinating. So that's half of my 30s. Then 
after five years, I decided I wanted to go do something else. And I was contacted by an old friend who asked if I wanted to go found a newspaper, a current affairs magazine, uh, something like a Swedish economist was the vision we had. <laughs> Not sure we attained that, but, but it was the vision. And so I went off and did a startup. Uh, which was ah. wonderful. So I was one of the founders of this current affair magazine, and we did everything from you know find a printer in Lithuania, uh, hire people, get advertising, set up subscription services, and get the, all of the articles in, build the web. So it was this enormously interesting project, and just running a company and understanding how that is done was great. And uh, after two and a half years, and the project was up and running, uh, I got an offer to go to the US. Uh, as an Eisenhower Fellow, and um, and this this Eisenhower Fellowship is essentially a three month trip around the U.S. where you get to meet with whoever you want to chat with. Essentially, so you could point to different people, and one of the people I pointed to was the founder of the policy team at Google, Andrew McLaughlin. And I, so I really oh, yeah. badly wanted to meet Andrew. And uh, Andrew was just returning from China. He was two hours late, but I persistently waited around and then went on, I think, to quite bad grace, badger him about why Google was entering China. And, you know, he, he, he bravely <laughs> put up with me and we had a good discussion. And I left thinking that that's a really interesting company came back to Sweden, um, did a little bit more work with the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce and with the magazine. And then in 2007, again, a small ad, this time in The Economist, looking for a Nordic policy council for Google. And so I sent an email and within a surprisingly brief time, somebody called me up and said that, yes, Andrew McLaughlin would like to interview me. I did a series of interviews uh, during which uh, Andrew uh, quite gleefully asked me if I changed my mind on China. <laughs> so that was uh, <laughs> quite the right voice. And we had good discussions and they ended up hiring me as a Nordic Policy Council. So at the end of my 30s uh, in 2007, I started a job with Google and I kept that job until 2009 when something else happened. But then we're moving from the 30s. So we'll, over to we'll you. Get on that. We'll, I mean, during, yeah, I mean yeah. during your 30s, you, you start as a civil servant, you go through this promotion of uh, e-commerce in Stockholm, and then you go through into this startup. We fascinating. And that was a paper printed magazine, was it? That was your primary we distribution. Very we were very particular about this. We wanted to make sure that we had perfect paper. So it was a high quality yeah. paper uh, production because we felt that there was something to be said for it. And, and the economics of this was crazy, of course. I mean, people aren't happy to pay for that. So you had to have free legs, advertising, subscription, and essentially philanthropy. If you couldn't sort of get all three legs to work, you couldn't make it work. But we did. So and when, the newspaper survived yeah. for 15 years. And we sold so when we talked in a previous episode, yeah, we, we talked previously, didn't we, about people who buy ink by the barrel. You were one of those. You were buying ink I by was, the barrel. I was, and I enjoyed it tremendously. I did. I did. <laughs> this is true. Managing director of yeah. the current affairs magazine. Who would have thought? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay, what about you? So, so, Let's hear. Yeah, so, so my, my, my 30s were sort of more monothematic and <laughs> quite, quite simple. So t towards the end of... Uh, my twenties, I started getting involved in politics, um, and and I was kind of quite a reluctant convert. I think I was brought up, I think in the school. I think my father was kind of quite a strong influence on me. Um, 
his attitude to politics might, might best be described as don't vote for them. It only encourages them. Uh, and so I sort of started in a, a, a sort of, a, you know, a pretty sort of skeptical of all the politicians. I was also brought up uh, in a place called Sheffield, which at the time had a conservative member of parliament who was p- part of Margaret Thatcher's uh, parliamentary majority at the time and, and a labor run city that was, really a kind of rotten borough in the sense that the Labour Party from the left had been running it for 60 or 70 years and, and sort of completely unchallenged. And so I grew up in this environment of like, oh, you know, politicians, terrible, you know, the Labour Party screwing up my city and the Conservatives are screwing up my country and, you know, my dad's right. <laughs> we should just not get involved. But somehow towards the end of my 20s, I started thinking, well, a, a little bit more, you know, like, am I just going to sit and spend the whole of my life shouting at the television when these people come on and essentially feeling disempowered or is, is there a way to to feel more empowered? Um, and so I got involved in politics. I joined the, the British Third Party, a party called the Liberal Democrats, and they, they suited my particular outlook and, and got elected to local councils. So I st- cut my teeth in local government. And then at the very end of my 20s, I was selected as a candidate for my home constituency up in, in Sheffield. I moved back up there and I actually carried on my work, uh, tech work for the NHS, out of a, an NHS office in a town called Barnsley, which is near to Sheffield. Um, and so carried that on right up until the election. But basically, I was spending you know, the, my, as I turned 30, that early part, uh, being a f- pretty much uh, full-time political candidate. And then age 31, I was elected to parliament in the, there was the great wave wow. where the conservatives were swept out of power. Uh, Tony Blair won his first famous victory. Um, and I, I, turned out I was the only not Labour MP in all of my area of South and West Yorkshire, which is the sort of industrial bit of uh, Yorkshire. Uh, my nearest Lib Dem colleague was up in, in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. So I, I sort of arrived into Parliament age 31, uh, just on this idea that I wanted to change things. Um, and then uh, stayed there until I, I uh, I've said one one election is almost like a matter of pride that you need to fight a second one just to prove that the first one wasn't just down to luck. And so I fought again in uh, <laughs> the next election, which is 2001, and I won again. Um, and then towards the end of the decade, though, in, in that second term, I started to feel, mm, you know, I didn't want to do this for life. Um, you know, that's, it's quite common that you do. And, and we ended up... Um, holding the seat the seat the seat the constituency feel pretty, felt pretty safe and actually the party held it for 20 years in the end um but i only did eight the first eight of those and then handed it over and some somebody else uh, took it on for the next 12 years but for those eight years uh, sort of from 31 to 39 i was an active member of the uk house of commons um specializing very much in tech issues uh, so we again we talked in our program on privacy about data protection so in 1998 i was transcribing the data protection directive i worked on surveillance law i was like fascinated by all the tech law stuff um i, I got made uh, a chairman of a committee which was kind of unusual but there was a funny little committee that dealt with parliamentary it and they were like oh here's somebody who knows about it so it's a, it a bit like telling all of parliament to turn it off and turn it on again that was the committee i ran the committee of the, turn it off and turn it on again people um so i sort of chaired that committee which is an interesting experience um and and then really sort of as i got into my second term there was a lot going on you know um and i 
started to feel more and more. I mean, it's, it was a fascinating job. It's an amazing responsibility. It's very, very satisfying to represent local people. And, and, and in the British system, you, you're literally, because it's not a, a sort of proportional or list-based system, I represented 80-odd thousand people who lived in the southwest of Sheffield. That was my sort of day job. And that was fascinating. You felt really valuable a lot of the time. But I started to realize that I just want to spend my whole time doing the technology policy. Uh, and I would sit mm. in committee meetings and we'd be, you know, uh, grilling people on the other side of the table who come in to explain why their IT systems had failed for some reason. And I'd be sitting there grilling them. But more and more, I thought I actually want to be on the other side of the table. I, I want to be the person who's built something and has to answer for it um, rather than the person who is essentially the professional critic. And again, very useful. It's not to dismiss it. Someone has to be the professional critic and and hold people to account. But I increasingly felt, I don't want to you know, spend my whole professional career doing that. I want to be on the other side of the table. I want to be building stuff in this internet economy. And so I decided halfway through that second term that I would step down. I told my constituency party, they, they selected another candidate. Um, it was a, a young man by the name of Nick Clegg, who ended up being the candidate, who went oh. on to do quite, quite interesting things in, in uh, UK politics. Um, but I sort of managed that transition, uh, managed managed to get him elected. There's a, there's a sort of classic thing when you're an incumbent and you hand over to somebody else, often the vote will sort of crash. Uh, and, and I didn't want that to happen, so I worked very hard with Nick and we actually managed to hold up the vote at pretty much the same level I got, but j- just half a percent less, which was enough for my ego just to make sure it's more than me. I would have been so, so I spent time getting Nick elected and, and I had no job to go to. I just knew I wanted to go into tech and I knew I wanted to go and, and, and be with the people who were building this internet thing. So this is, you know, I'm making my decisions around the year 2000. So this is, uh, uh, 1999, 2000, I made the decision 2001. I'm, I'm out. Uh, I'm, oh, oh, sorry. My timelines are wrong. I'm making this around 2005. This is 2003, four, uh, 2001 right. was the second election. So this is 2000 and, uh, three, four, and I'm out in 2005. Um, so I wanted to be where the action was 2005. When I had uh, been in Parliament, I'd actually spent quite a lot of time with Cisco, who are not a very famous household name, but for techies, they're the people who actually were sort of pretty substantively built the internet in the sense that they built a lot of the routers and equipment uh, that the internet runs on. And and they were very early out there. There was two or three different companies that built the stuff that the internet runs on. Um, and Cisco had impressed me as a pretty interesting and good company. And they offered me a job 2005. Once I'd left parliament, they said, hey, now you're free. Would you like to come and work for us? Um, so I went to Cisco uh, and actually had three or four uh, very good years there, um, working away, again, very different. And we're going to get on to talking about working for the Googles and Facebooks. Um, very different experience yeah. I had with them. But but that was sort of as I came out, as I ended my 30s, uh, and hit the age of um, 40, it was the newly released from Parliament and going into the tech sector with a job in a tech, a US tech giant, um, Cisco Systems. So that's mm-hmm. that's got us through our 30. So, um, um, oh, you have a question? We're yeah, going to come to you. We're going to come to you now. 
No, so yes, no. I, th I mean, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's worthwhile stressing that your, your sort of um, your public service, I think, is uh, amazing, and I think it's something that that actually is forgotten often how important that is, uh, and how important it is to really engage with um, politics. And I think that that must have, and I think it's worthwhile just reflecting or hearing you reflect on that. The fact that you've been on the other side must have fundamentally shaped also your view of what people are trying to do. You speak about this critic that is uh, a legitimate critic, an important role. Um, and I think a lot of people miss that and they end up in some kind of rut cynicism and say, oh, politicians don't want to do this. They don't just want to be heard, etc." And I think I would like to hear you reflect a bit more on that because I think it's so important, um, yeah. if you don't mind. But yeah, I mean, I mean, my, my sort of headline take is, I think politics works well when we treat it like just another job, um, but a quite special and important job, just like, you know, being a surgeon is just another job. Uh, at the same time, quite an important uh, job that people do being a lawyer. There's lots of different jobs like that. So I think where politics goes off track is where politicians themselves and the people around them start to think it's something sort of special that there's some divine mm. qualities imbued and, th and there is a risk and some politicians get like that to be frank uh and, yeah. and you can sort of create this whole, whole nonsense around it but my experience is that most politicians aren't most politicians are there to do a good job and i actually still have huge respect for politicians as a class having been in there you know i left but it wasn't because i think these people are terrible i left because i wanted to do something different um but i have huge respect for politicians they're doing a job uh, uh, for society and that job most of it certainly in a parliamentary system is an accountability job you know the the legislation is coming from an executive. The policies are often coming from civil servants, actually, if we're really honest. The, the sort of hard grunt work of deciding what policy should be put in place is done by civil servants. And so there's an executive who pushes it through. Your parliamentarian is there, though, to represent their constituents, um, you know, provide this great feedback channel so that if you've got a bad policy, you know, the, hopefully the people will come and bang on your door and say, this policy is really not working for me. And then you're going to take that back into your parliament. And you're holding the executive to account and you're going through legislation line by line to test what it really means and make sure that everyone understands what the legislation means. So these are all really, really important functions. And um, as I say, I've got a huge amount of respect for most of the people who do it. Um, the bit where I part company and, and maybe why I wasn't so sort of successful as a politician is there is this sort of certain amount of, you know, star quality and put yourself out there and be a kind of quasi celebrity um the, mm. the old saying uh i can use it it's harsh but it's true it's sort of, politics is show business for ugly people there is that sort of that sort of saying <laughs> that hangs over it um and so that that show busy thing uh i think is probably where the end that i don't like of it but the substantive hard graft i think is really important work and and so when i meet yes when i came to the other side as somebody working in the industry and i meet a politician my first assumption is that they're a serious, hardworking politician, that they're not yeah. stupid. Um, and again, I've seen uh, you know, a lot of people are sort of lobbying politicians. They, they write these sort of letters, and I used to receive them, and, and, and it's somebody who disagrees with you, but the letter t typically sort of starts with, um, dear politician, uh, the idea that you've got is, is complete nonsense. Can you tell me whether you've got this idea because A, you are completely stupid, or B, you are corrupt and taking a backhander from somebody. And you're like, 
that's not a great starting place for a conversation. And so I'd like to think I've never done that. My, my assumption is the politician's working in good faith uh, and is reasonably bright and is not corrupt um, unless proven otherwise. You know, So I think that I hopefully have been able Thank to bring you. that yes. to my other work. Yes. So, so let's get get back then to to you're now in Google. Uh, you've been hired into one of these dangerous public policy teams. Um, so I'd yes. love to hear about that experience again, because pe- people, there's a whole sort of mythology around it. You know, uh, tech lobbyists um, uh, going out with bags of cash and you know, trying to buy their way into getting certain forms of influence. Uh, uh, like, help dispel <laughs> dispel that myth and tell us what it was really like to go into the Google policy team. Yes. So you have to remember, I started in the regional policy team. So in 2007, I'm hired to build the Nordic public policy team. And at the time, the Nordics were considered, and I think they still are in some sense, uh, so benign that they decided that I couldn't just do all four Nordic countries on my own. I should probably also take on a few international organizations. So I got to be responsible for the OECD, the ICC, some of the UN work, the IGF, etc. So I got the whole acronym soup that is about tech policy. And, And the work was interesting because you know a lot of people had heard about the internet a lot of people knew what google was but they had no idea why google would be interested in anything that happened in political circles so i had to invite myself to go around to the different nordic countries and meet with folks and sit down with them and talk to them and just generally walk them through things that i thought were important for them to know and there was literally just a series of conversations the first two years at google was a series of really well-informed good conversations about technology policy uh, no bags of money involved, no secret handshakes, no dark networks, no Machiavellian influence plans whatsoever. And I think that the one thing that struck me having come from, from sort of both this startup that I, I ran and the, the Chamber of Commerce was that uh, this was really a company that always wanted to be included in every discussion. I think this is this is one of Google's characteristics. It's a strength, but also a potential weakness. Google has not seen a panel they don't want to be on. Uh, you know, <laughs> never, never, ever not answered the phone. In stark contrast to a company like Apple, Apple's entire public policy uh, philosophy can be summed up in don't answer the fucking phone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, stay away from that phone. It might be ringing, but don't touch the phone. So, I mean, that's... That, and, and I think they can do that because there is a Google who goes like, oh, ringing phone. Let's see if there are people who want to discuss it. <laughs> so, so it's like, I, I think that that mentality was so interesting. And, and the way that um, the, the sort of Andrew framed it for us was to say, you know, look, we're clearing a path. A lot of people will have to know about this technology in order for them to feel comfortable with it as it's actually deployed. So the role of a public policy team back then was really that, to have those conversations, a clear path to make sure that you walk into almost any context and just explain what what technology is about and why you shouldn't be afraid of it and how you can put checks and balances in place that makes sense. So those were the first two years, the the Nordic uh, Policy Council job. Um, Now we're in 2009. So in 2009, a couple of different things happened. One of them is that Andrew McLaughlin decides to leave Google uh, to go be the deputy CTO in the Obama administration. So he calls the entire European team into London uh, in order to explain that he's heading off and telling us what's next. And we're talking through a, a couple of different times and he, he takes me aside and he says, you know, I um, and, um, uh, really recommend that you go off to Mountain View and spend a couple of years there. Because I think that, you know, you're obviously uh, geeky and you like reading stuff. And I think we need a central team. We need some kind of team that just 
takes care of all of the research, figure out what our arguments are, you know, write the one-pagers, make sure you take care of the international visitors. Some kind of central policy function is needed, and I would love for you to go over and, and scale that up. And, and in doing so, you would be working with a couple of people who are already in place, but your job would also be to grow and build this team. Um, and I thought that sounded great. Uh, and until I came back to, to uh, Sweden and spoke to my family, and they did not want to move to Mountain View at all. And I felt terribly bad then because it was such a nice opportunity and, you know, saying no to something like that and remaining at the company felt wrong. So I quit. Uh, I called up my then boss, Rachel Whetstone, and said, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to take this, this job and I feel bad about it. So I quit. And so I left Google for six months and went back to the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. But after those six months, we were in February. It was cold. It was snowing. And my family sort of said, maybe Mountain View wouldn't be such a bad idea after <laughs> all. <laughs> and I, I was like, really? Really? You want me to call them up and ask if this is a good idea? So I called them up. And incredibly, Rachel and a few of the other leaders on the team said, sure, great. I'd love to sort of just make sure that you, you do, do the interviews and we'd love to have you back. No hard feelings, no grudges. I thought that was amazing and I'm still sort of humbled by the opportunity. I was supported there. I think that's that's sort of a big deal for me. So at that point, I did the interviews and in 2010, uh, I traveled over to Mountain View to, to work with this enormous tech company, you know, at its headquarters. And at that point, you would have expected the secret handshakes, the dark networks and the bags of money. But no, <laughs> I mean, at this time, this was this was an enormous campus with colored bikes and lots of people who were engaged in tons of interesting projects. And I remember speaking to to Hal Varian, who's our chief economist, who, who sort of he used to quip about Google that it's just like a university, but with money. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and you, quite get paid, right. you get paid to, to go instead of instead of paying to be there. Instead they pay the you. Way Whoa, yes. it's very strange. And so it was. It was a really. I, I realize now when I look at it, it was a very privileged position, uh, of course, but it was also an, an, a fantastic opportunity to meet with tons of other smart people. I think one of the biggest, most underestimated things about working at Facebook or Google is the other people. That sort of network of intelligence that you connect to is just amazing. So I had three and a half brilliant years there where I learned tons and uh, had the chance to build a central team across a couple of different continents and really make sure that we had a, a strategy working. And you know, I had the pleasure of working with some of the brightest people I've ever met uh, in that central team. But after three and a half years, I decided that I wanted to be, you know, grow old in Sweden. I also want my kids to go to school here. So we moved back. And I had a brilliant plan. My brilliant plan was to become what is tech company speak is called an individual contributor. An individual oh, yes. contributor is somebody who, who sits on their own, has a project, can sort of plug away on that project quietly, and then occasionally have great successes or, you know, at least adjust. And, and it's, it's a kind of a nice role, very underestimated. And I was doing that for, for all of two months before uh, I had a phone call uh, that suggested I apply for another role, which would be to lead the uh, European and then EMEA policy team. Um, I was very hesitant to begin with and said, you know, I just moved my family back to Stockholm. I don't, I mean, I don't want to move to London or Brussels. Um, and I believe it was Rachel. I don't remember, but I believe it was Rachel who laughed for like a full minute or so when I said that and said, I don't care where you live. You're going to be on an airplane all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> that, that turned out to be right. Um, and so I spent the next five and a half years doing that. 
uh, and had roughly 160 travel days a year. I guess you had something similar. And uh, I, I enjoyed it enormously. And so, so now we're into 2018-2019. Um, I've done this for five and a half years. I, I should really be doing something else. And I uh, was then offered the opportunity to go build a strategic planning team, the policy planning team at Google. Um, and the policy planning team was essentially set up as a scenario planning future studies team to help the company think hard about what are the next questions, the next problems. If we solve all of the problems that you and I have discussed, intermediary liability, content moderation, data protection, what then? What will then yes. happen? So that was tremendously stimulating and super interesting. A small but mighty team that I, I think is still doing really, really great work uh, at Google. So so that's sort of the, the, the Google span. And at no point uh, <laughs> can I say that there were any secret handshakes, dark networks or bags of money. The closest I've been, and I really missed you there because I think I think you'd sent somebody else, was when we were uh, all invited, uh, and I say invited. Uh, Summoned. <laughs> Summoned is the better term, yes. I think, to, to discuss uh, a serious issue, a really serious issue, question of, of terrorism and platforms, etc., to the G7 interior ministers uh, meeting on a small island outside of Naples. Um, and uh, the amount of helicopters and black boats and everything, I think that would probably have matched up with the expectations, but that was once, <laughs> once in 13 yeah. years. And so I, I don't think there are a few other stories as well, but none of them are very nefarious. And I, I guess that's a huge disappointment to folks. But, you know, that's that's the way it is. But I have to just say one thing that I think is is before I hand it over to you, because I want to hear from you, of course. Yeah. And the thing I want to say is the other thing that I remember is the first time I met you was when Andrew told the team that he was leaving. So it That's has right. to have been around 2009 because he had uh, you and I, y'all let you tell the story, but we met at the Google offices. Um, I think it was um, the Victoria offices, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. And you had just had a conversation with him and I met you as you were heading out to the elevators. And they then asked Andrew who you were and Andrew's, story then, which you may or may not want to confirm, was that he had offered you a job, but that you felt that you had a deeper commitment to Cisco at the time, and so that you regretted that you could not take it. But but yes. I'll let you tell the rest of that story. Sorry, over back to no. you. <laughs> yeah, that is the story. Yeah, so, so I, I've left Parliament and I've gone to work at Cisco Systems, who, who took a chance on me. And again, we should be candid that former politicians have a mixed reputation. I mean, they can be very good, but they can also you know, be quite a handful, particularly if they're in that sort of minor superstar category where uh, they're not willing to get their hands dirty. And and I, the people at Cisco were very blunt with me and kind of go, you know, why are we going to take a chance on you? You're, you're a politician. We're not sure we want a politician. We want someone who knows how to work hard. Um, but they had taken that chance. <laughs> I, res I respected them for it. Um, and so, Andrew, you're right. I had a conversation with him and, and when I was about a, a year or so into the Cisco job. And and I said to him, look, I don't feel it's fair to just churn out of Cisco when I, I've only just you know been there not that long. They've taken the chance on me, so I sort of parked that. Although I found the idea very attractive, I think Andrew is you know, very inspirational. And your team was fascinating, and I think he invited me back to Victoria to kind of go like see what you're missing because <laughs> it was great to see the team. And, and I remember him showing me that. 
you had vending machines where you could get mice and keyboards and kit out of vending machines and all this stuff, which I later came to experience at, at Facebook. But at that time, that, that wasn't the sort of Cisco way. Um, so I was back there. And then it was 2009. Um, I was approached by Facebook. And at that time, they we got to remember it was a sort of uh, odd little site for kids and you know teens and university students the way it was seen and we can now look back at it uh but at the time it was like mm, you know this is not mainstream we're not sure it's going to go anywhere it's like a, you know myspace is still kicking around are these are these things just a fad um but they contacted me uh they had no real infrastructure they they had the office in London, they had one by then, I think, but it was so grotty that they would only meet you in a coffee shop because they were too embarrassed about their offices. And um, they talked to me and and they said, oh, you know, you look like what we're looking for. And they were at the time looking, this is just to hire one person in the United States to look after public policy in the United States and one person outside for kind of... I mean, there was an ambition to do more, but immediately they knew they needed someone in Europe. <laughs> they knew they needed someone in the US. And so um, I had that conversation with them. And then they said, well, can you fly over to California and, and meet with us? And I, I almost didn't go. I was, at the time, it was like, and actually I'd applied for a job with the government and various other sort of jobs. Uh, and at the time it was like, oh, do I want to go and do that? And actually a friend of mine who's a, another a politician whose husband is a film producer, I had breakfast with her and I said, she was in town. And she, and I said, yeah, I'm not sure about going off to California. It's like such a schlep. And she said, well, look, my, my husband, the film producer says, take the meeting always take the meeting because you don't know what's going to happen and what's the worst you've wasted you know four days going to california and back just take the meeting so i said okay you're wise i'll take the meeting i flew to california it was chaos like they they were on the back of one of facebook's many uh uh sort of chaotic updates their terms of service every time facebook updates its terms of service and i'm gratified to see they're still doing this with whatsapp recently it's just totally chaotic (laughs) everything sort of spirals out of control i mean not not because the people there are bad but because they can't control the story and the story becomes you know they're they're doing something devious and so this was the first of those it was known as toss gate at the time terms of service gate and uh, i I went in all these people were kind of completely frazzled climbing up the walls they're all bouncing in and out of this room to talk to me um sort of in in gym clothes and things as they grabbed 10 minutes um uh, and they were all super bright. And there, there were all these people like Sheryl Sandberg and Elliot Schrager was the boss of the team that I met at the time. And I just thought, you know, like this could all go really badly wrong, but I'm <laughs> going to learn so much uh, spending some time here. And you made the point earlier. Most importantly, I'm going to get to work with some really bright people who are yeah. fascinating, who have got all this energy and drive, um, and as I said, I'd, I'd done an interview with the British government at the time, which was behind a big wooden table with a panel of four people who all all asked you the same questions, and they had to be the same questions for every candidate, all like super formal. Mm. And to go f- uh, and and to go from that to all these sort of crazy people bouncing into the room, going, "Wow, what ideas have you got? Whoa, what's going on?" Like, but you know, say bright and motivated. Oh, okay, I'm going to take a gamble on that. I'm going to go off to this Facebook company, and we'll see what happens. Um, and you and know, friends of mine sort of later. Well, right? There weren't at that time. It yeah. was so. It was, I mean, they, they were in like later, sort of. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, rough offices, they copied a lot of that sort of Google stuff when they started having their own offices. But at this stage, it was sort of camping out in odd offices in downtown Palo Alto. And they say now, now people say, well, that was a smart move. And it was, but at, at the time it was, you know, quite a, a risky move, but it was motivated by wanting to work with these people who were just you know building this thing and so passionate about it and i this is this is what i mean by you know getting excited about the internet and so i joined and um uh say so the team was two, two policy people at the time um and then i i actually served you know longer than most of the people in the team as i built up an operation in emir so i started hiring people in every different country or not every different country but across the different countries to cover every country in in the region of europe middle east africa emir is one of those things like row it's geek speak but yeah. it basically means europe middle east africa and in our case also had russia you know kind of like russia yeah. turkey so on that and we're all Turkey, part of this yeah. region yeah, so I, I built that team up, um, probably hired about 60 or 70 people <laughs> over the years um, and really enjoyed that. And it was very satisfying. It's just, just you know, culturally to get to know different places. I got to know Turkey, which I find a fascinating country. And you get to know it by, because you've been summoned, you use the word earlier, you've been summoned by yes. the government there. And you're like right in the heart of, you know, the issues, the political issues in that country. And so just this sort of fascinating experience of being in the middle of these quite hot political issues. And with, with Facebook, again, by contrast with Cisco, with Cisco, it was like, we need to tell you that we've built the internet because they've never heard of you. <laughs> with Facebook, <laughs> you go in the meeting and uh, they're often the say they're summoning you and it's because it's quite personal to them. Uh, you know, maybe yeah. their own activity on Facebook or a family member, but there's something happening that they care about. Uh, and so you're having conversations with politicians about stuff they care about. Uh, and so I did that, built the team. And then at a certain point, you know, I'd gone as far as I felt I could go with that job. And I wanted to get into some of the more thematic policy areas. So uh, the team moved on to another leader, the, the regional team. And I took on four or five of the difficult issues uh, in a, probably a similar role to the last role you had at Google. Um, but yeah. in, in my case, it was dealing with the issues that are sort of maybe six months to a year out rather than the one sort of uh, long term. So there'd be issues like, you know, taxation, uh, economic impact, uh, uh, actually some that I ran the politics and election side of things or oversaw that for a time. There were good people mm. running all of these functions. I was the sort of overseer and, and coordinator of all this stuff. Uh, and I did that um, for a couple of years um, before, after sort of reaching 10 and a bit years, deciding, you know, actually, your, my family has sacrificed a huge amount while I was doing this stuff. Um, I, yeah. I did try my not opinion. to be constantly on a plane, um, but it's sort of inevitable. It comes with the territory. Either you're on a plane or you're distracted, you know, and you, you're on the phone and it's all hours of the day because I was working – uh, the European day, the British day, and the Californian day. That's a long day. Yes, the bonus um, day, as we call it. The fact that you get yeah, an extra yeah. work day at the end of your work day, it's sort of a perk. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, so I, and then I decided that, uh, that um, it was time to sort of uh, stop doing that. And I, I didn't want to go and say, just go off to another tech company. That wasn't the point at the time. The point was just to kind of stop and uh, spend some time with the family um, and then COVID hit. And so at the time, I had decided to spend more time with my family. Suddenly, the whole world was spending more time with their family. So that's sort of wh where I've got to. Um, but Nicholas, wh where are you now? You're, you're not Google anymore, are you? 
No, no. So uh, end of 2020, uh, I decided, hmm. I think for a multitude of reasons, that, that uh, it would be good for me to, to go somewhere where I had a steeper learning curve. And uh, I had an enormous, uh, enormous luck. I was asked by someone to apply for a job. Uh, at a small tech startup, well, not so small anymore, I guess, but a small tech startup, a financial uh, services tech startup called Stripe. Uh, and that's where I currently am. I'm three months in, so uh, I will tell you that uh, the one thing I have discovered is that the financial services sector loves acronym even more than tech people, which is both surprising and, and somewhat disappointing. So there you go. It's <laughs> it's an enormous amount of stuff to learn, which is what I wanted. So I'm super happy. And I'm thinking through a lot of different things uh, anew. You're sort of coming back to questions and revisiting them. And I think that was the one thing, and that is the one thing that I really want to think hard about now. And that is, you know, this thing that we do, public policy and government affairs, is a craft. And I really believe that there's value in, as you and I have started to do, think through what that craft looks like. And that's something that I'm quite passionate about because I I really dislike it when people approach it in a haphazard way or when people feel that it's uh, you know it's it's just about the the sneaky stuff as you said earlier the secret handshakes and the bags of money and it's not it's a craft and it's an important craft it's something that I think makes society stronger if it's done right so that's that sort of that is something I'm now bringing with me into how I think about, partly how I think about things at Stripe, but also how I think about my my own future interests. What do I want to do? How do I want to sort of develop? And so those that's that's roughly where I am today. And I'm on an island in the archipelago in Stockholm because of the pandemic. So plenty of time to think. <laughs> Excellent. What about you? Well, I, th- I think... Um, so, so I'm to say I sort of stopped that piece of work, but I, again, I'm exploring. I, I'm not learning a new language like you're learning the language of fintech, I guess. So I'm uh, less about learning a new language and more about going back to some of the things I've been interested in for a long time. Um, so that includes looking at uh, open public data. I've always been interested in opening up the data the public sector holds. I'm sort of working with some folks on that. I, I've got a few spillover things from from my time at Facebook where I'm working with people who are trying to um, access data for research purposes. I think research in this area is vital. Again, we, we keep touching on it in many of our podcast episodes that there's a lot of hypotheses that are being accepted as fact and, and they really do need to be tested. So these, you know, these questions like, like what effect does seeing misinformation online have on people? At the moment, are not are not really known or, or solved questions because the research hasn't happened. So, if I can help make sure the data is available for people to be able to research that questions, those questions, that's useful. Um, I'm also I'm back as a part time legislator in our crazy British system. I've for a while um, been a member of the House of Lords, which is the second chamber of the British Parliament. So, I, I um, spend time voting, which which we all do remotely now because the the House of Lords average age I think is sort of seventy ish. It's a vulnerable population. And so we decided early on in the pandemic that we would move everything online. And so I can sit there on my phone and yeah. uh, uh, participate in the in the legislative proceedings there. And then to your last point, the bit I'm also really interested in is how do we distill all this knowledge and experience um, and put it out there and 
people may not agree with it and they may be cynical and they I, I'm fine with all of that but I think it's important yeah. that people do uh, learn what we've learned and, and understand how we see things uh, we people who work in public policy um, they can make of it what they will but as I, said, I think it, it, it would be a, a mistake not to get this stuff out on the record there's too much um, I think again sort of almost bouncing from the extremes either people are you know, completely drunk the Kool-Aid and, and are wedded to some technology service and, and unwilling to accept any kind of, you know, criticism or questions about it. Or at the other end, they're saying technology is entirely evil and, and they're not willing to kind of concede that the people who work in those companies might have anything good about them. Reality, I as a sort of good old liberal centrist, is somewhere in the middle. And I think if we can contribute to that, and I'm enjoying our conversation so much, and I think I'm looking forward to us, I think, being able to write some stuff that may be of interest yeah. to our listeners, where we actually try and, and set out some of the things that, that um, we think about how this craft, this business of public policy works, uh, where we think it works well, where we think it doesn't. And I think we can both do that from quite a uh, open and, and free perspective, given where we're both situated. So that's it. That. Lots, lots to do, I think, in 2021. Um, but on that happy note, I will, uh, I think we should close this episode. Um, I hope it's been uh, interesting, if a little different from the previous ones. And next week, we will be back to digging into some thorny um, political issue uh, or public policy issue related to technology um, back on track again. Um, as ever, do give us any feedback. Uh, and this blog post or the, right, this podcast will be uh, published <laughs> where nicholas you can do the bit i normally do oh regulate.tech and that's yeah, exactly oh, exactly right and on that note we'll close and uh speak to you again soon bye-bye bye-bye <laughs>